Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us how God is looking for someone that is wholehearted for him and will take him seriously like Noah did. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Now, here's some highlights from this week's messages. What's going on? Why does this world know not? Why are they shocked? Their reality, it was real to them. And that's because they had made themselves the new not generation. He set up the earth so that man would keep the earth holy. Now here's Tom Cantor as we conclude our Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday expository study in Genesis. God was looking with his eyes on the earth for who he could show grace to. And he found the person in Noah. That's how come Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. He was looking with his eyes for who would stand alone for God during this time. He was looking with his eyes for whose soul would be vexed and troubled by the filthy lifestyle of those around him. Like that's the description of Paul. His soul was vexed with the filthy conversation. He was looking for those. God was doing exactly what it says in 2 Chronicles 16, 9, where it says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect toward him. God was looking with his eyes on the earth. God was looking with his eyes on the earth back and forth on the earth. His eyes were running to and fro throughout the whole earth. That's what it says. Without stopping the great concentration God has. He's going back and forth and back and forth and to and fro and to and fro. And he's asking who, where, let me find one man, one woman, one boy, one girl that's wholehearted for me. That's what he was doing. He was searching for that. Let me find one man, one woman, one boy, one girl that is 100% sold out for me, that's yearning for me with all of his heart and has got to have God. Let me find that person. And what does he do when he finds that person? What does it say he'll do when he finds that person? It says that he wants to show to the world. He wants to take that person and make him a trophy, a showcase for him. He'll show just how strong God can be for that person. He wants to show the world just how much God can help that person with strength. He wants to make that person an example of what it means for a person to be the temple of God. He wants the world to see that like Pharaoh saw and said of Joseph, can we find such a man in whom the Spirit of God is? That's what God wanted to do. He wanted to do that, to place himself within that person so that the world would see that's a man. That's a woman, that's a boy, that's a girl in whom the Spirit of God is. So the first thing that God was doing was looking with his eyes on the earth, scouring back and forth, looking for anyone who would repent of their sins, who would be vexed by sins, who would call out to God with all of his heart. The second thing that God was doing during Noah's day is seen in verse 3, Genesis 6, 3. The Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man. We've covered that. For that he also is flesh. This part. Yet his days shall be 120 years. God was giving man a space to repent. 
He said, when he said, yet his day shall be 120 years, God was saying, I have carved out for you 120 years, and I've labeled that a space to repent. That's a space for you to repent. He didn't say, now if you do this, I won't do it. But that's who God is. So he tells that this time period as a space to repent. That's exactly what it says in 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering. That's what it means to be long-suffering, a space to repent. Why does he do that? Because he doesn't want anybody to perish. He wants everybody to be saved. He was being long-suffering. He was giving man the space to repent. When God told Abraham that his people would be in Egypt for 400 years, he told him in a context that went like this in Genesis 15, 16. But in the fourth generation, they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Don't have the impression that God is sitting back there and says, I just can't wait for them to fill up their cups like smash them. That's not God. God was saying this, that he was giving the Amorites a 400-year space to repent. That was the issue there. Why did God tell Abraham about about the 400 years? Because he was giving the Amorites a 400-year space to repent. When the Lord Jesus Christ was walking on his road of sorrows to the place where he was going to be crucified, there was following him a group of Jewish women, and they were crying, and what he did to them is very interesting in Luke 26, because this group of women he turned around and addressed. And it says this is what happened. As they led him away, they laid a hold upon one Simon, a Cyrenian, coming out of the country. On him they laid the cross he might bear it after them. And there followed him a great company of people and of women, which also bewailed and lamented him. But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, you think to yourself, how can you say weep not for me? I'm just a man that's condemned. He's going to be crucified. He's going to be tortured up there. Can't even hardly walk. Someone has to carry his cross. He said, don't weep for me. He said, weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in the which they shall say, blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bear and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say the mountains fall on us and to the hills cover us. See, he told them, don't cry for me because I see what's going to happen to you and to your children and you need to cry for yourself and for your children. He said the judgment was going to come to Jerusalem and it would be so bad that people would beg mountains to kill them. He said, that's how bad it's going to be. And that's exactly what happened. How long? 40 years. From the time of his crucifixion until Titus destroyed Jerusalem. 40 years. Why did he say the days are coming? Why did he say that? Because just as he told Abraham that he was giving the Amorites a 400 years to repent, he gave to Jerusalem a 40-year space to repent from the crucifixion to the destruction of the city. And then after Jonah was vomited out of the big fish, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. It says that in Jonah 3, 1 through 4 where it says, And the word of the Lord came unto Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go into Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. I don't want you to miss that. God told Jonah, You preach the preaching that I put in your mouth. I'm going to tell you the words 
that you are to preach, and that's what you are to preach. That's what it means when it says, preach unto it the preaching that I bid thee. And then it says, so Jonah arose and went into Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh is exceeding great city of three days' journey. Nineveh began to enter into the city of one day's journey, and he cried and said. And what he said was the preaching that God told him to preach. This was God's message, and the message was very simple. His message was, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. That's what his message was. His message was not, if you repent or anything like that. He just said, 40 days and the city's going to be gone. That was the message that God told him to say. Well, if God was going to destroy Nineveh, why do that? Why did God do that? Because when he said, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be destroyed, and that was God's message, that in 40 years it would be destroyed, what God was doing there is he was creating for Nineveh a 40-day space to repent. It was a 40-day space to repent. Just as he gave the Amorites a 400-year space to repent, just as he gave Jerusalem a 40-year space to repent, he gave to Nineveh a 40-day space to repent. And here in our passage, he gave to the world before the flood 120 years space to repent. And the Ninevites did repent. And that's wonderful. And it says that they believed God and they proclaimed a fast and they put on sackcloth. And the king did it too. He took off his robe and sat in ashes. And make a long story short, God repented. And Nineveh was not destroyed. And that's why God gives the space to repent. Because he wants to not judge. So what was God doing during the time before the flood? He was looking with his eyes on the earth back and forth for a wholehearted, 100% sold out person to God. He was giving the earth a space to repent. And there's one more thing that God was doing during that time. And we see that in Genesis 3, 13 through 19, where it starts off that passage in Genesis 6, 13 through 19. And that passage starts off with these words, and God said unto Noah. God is calling to Noah. God is speaking to Noah. And this is what he's doing. God is busy. He's busy. God's very busy. Not only busy giving space to repent, he's busy going back and forth searching on the earth, and he's busy talking to Noah. And he says to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for he's filled with violence, I'll destroy them. Verse 14, he says, make this ark. And then uh, verse 17, he says, he's going to bring a flood of waters. Verse 18, he says, he's going to make a covenant, and everybody who gets in the ark is going to be saved. But here's what God was saying to Noah. First, Number one, God announced to Noah the flood was coming. God told Noah he is going to destroy the earth. That's what God did. That's in Genesis 6, 13. The end of all flesh has come before me, and he says, I will destroy the earth. That's what he said. So he announces to Noah that he's going to destroy the earth. Number two, God explained to Noah why he was going to destroy the earth. That's also in Genesis 6, 13, because he said it's filled with violence and it's corrupt. Number three, God commanded Noah to build the ark. And he gave very detailed instructions for how it should be. He commanded him, in verse 14, make thee an ark of gopher wood, and he tells him all about it. And then, number four, God made a promise to Noah. He made a promise to Noah that Noah... And those that would go with Noah would be saved. That's what he said in Genesis 6, 18 through 19. But with thee will I establish my covenant. The first time in the Bible this word is used, breed, for covenant. And thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy sons with thee, and of every living flesh, two of every sort, 
And the important words are to keep them alive with thee. That's the motto. To keep them alive with me. Noah could very well preach, if you believe me and you come with me, you will be saved. To keep them alive with thee. That's what God was doing before the flood. That's what the world was doing before the flood. And what was Noah doing before the flood? Well, we've already seen. Noah was being righteous before God. In other words, he was the heir of the righteousness of faith. He believed God. He moved with fear and built the ark. So therefore, he had the righteousness that was accounted to him. Noah was being perfect in the sense of wholehearted. There was not a half-hearted bone in Noah's body. He was being wholehearted. That's the same word perfect that is described in Nehemiah's day when it talked about when the wall was complete. When the wall was complete around Jerusalem in Nehemiah's day, it said uses the same word, Tamim, it says it's perfect. In other words, there was no holes in it. Noah did not have a divided heart. And the other thing Noah was doing, he was walking with God, as we've seen already. It indicates a habitual walking with God. He was walking with God every day. He was steadfast. Noah was seeking God. That's how come he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. It says about him in Hebrews eleven six, and when it talks about Noah, he says that he diligently sought God. He was a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. That was Noah. He was faithful. He was preaching during that time. We've seen that from 2 Peter 2. He was a preacher of righteousness. That was also what Noah was doing. And the thing that really characterizes Noah's life is in Hebrews eleven seven. it says that Noah moved with fear. He moved with fear. He was afraid. He was afraid for his family. He was afraid for his friends. He was afraid for the world. He was afraid when God said that he was going to judge the world. That's the way Noah was. And so therefore Noah was able to save his family. That's where we'll end now. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these words that we learn about Noah as our example. We thank you so much, Lord, that even the world was so corrupt, so bad, that you were very busy seeking to save that which was lost. And we do pray, Lord, that in the day in which we live, that you'd help us to be like Noah, and you'd help us to also be busy seeking to save that which was lost. Thank you for hearing us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Tom, today you spoke about how Noah moved with fear. How does that apply to our relationship with God? Those are three great words, moved with fear. You know, there's a, there's a question that's asked in the Bible, how should we then live? You know, the answer is we should move with fear. And so in the first area, as you asked here, our relationship with God should be one where we move with fear. Why should we be afraid? He saved us for eternity. Everything, everything good, nothing to worry about, nothing to fear. But there is the verse in 2 Corinthians 5.10 that says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. So what is, how does that apply to us in our relationship with God? 
we move with fear. Why? Because we know when it says that we will all appear before this judgment seat of Christ, it means that we all know that we're going to sit down. There's going to be a day of discussion. There's going to be a day of reckoning. There's going to be a day of evaluation. There's going to be a day of rewards or loss of rewards. That's what it means when it says we should all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. I want to be able to say to him, as we all want to be able to say to him, we know what you gave us. Here's a list of what you gave us. And right at the side of the of everything that you gave it, here's how I tried to use it for you. This is what I sought to do. I know I knew you gave me that, and so I did this. I used it for you here. I knew you gave me this, and this is what I did with it. Everything we've been given is like a tool, and God is going to cut. We're going to sit down with him at the judgment seat of Christ, and he's going to say to us, what did you do with the tools that I gave you? And we want to be able to give a report. So the first thing is to come to the realization that he has just doesn't shower things on us so that we can say, oh, nice, more, nice, nice, oh, very nice, very comfortable, very happy, very enjoyable, thank you very much. No, he's given, there is a job. There is a job to be done. He said, my father worketh and I works also, and he means you should work as well. And I've given you all of these opportunities here and there, money here and there, resources here and there, house, so forth and so on. I've given all those to you as tools, as as tools for you to use for me. So how did you use them? That's the day that we're all going to come to. So we move with fear so that we don't want to say, well, yeah, the money you gave us, oh. Oh, well, uh, you know, uh, oh, you should have seen the view from the Caribbean house I bought. Oh, was it beautiful. No, that's going to be very embarrassing, very shameful. We don't want to stand before him and have our works burn up so that in a pitiful position, in a pitiful picture, we bend over and so pitiful we try to sweep up all these ashes as we press them into his nail-pierced hand and say, here, Lord, this is all I got to give for you. Uh, we should be afraid of in being in a position like that. So we move with fear with what he's given us so that we can say, Lord, here's the gold and the silver. It stood through the fire. I've got these. This is what I've done for you with what you've given me. That's how it affects our relationship. It applies to our relationship with God today. We move with fear. And definitely that is uh, something we need to be motivated for, moving with fear towards a judgment seat. But how can we apply this to say something like our prayer life? being moved with fear. Yes, you know, it's something is that we do not live in fatalism. What in other words, what is going to happen has not been written in advance. Though God knows he does not determine, he has given us a free will. And that's why he said in Matthew 7:7 7, 7 through 8, ask and ask, 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 he's saying, it shall be given to you. Seek you will find. Knock, it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. To him that knocketh, it shall be opened. In other words, he's saying, who determines whether it will be given to you? Who determines whether you will find? Who determines what doors will be opened? You do. 
That's what he's saying. You do. How? By whether or not you ask or not. By whether or not you seek or not. By whether or not you knock or not. Those are your decisions, he's saying. And if you ask, then you'll receive. Then it'll be given to you. If you seek, you'll find. If you knock, it shall be opened unto you. But it's your decision. And that's why he went back and he said, for everyone, every person who decides and every person who goes ahead with asking, they're the ones who receive. Every person who says, I'm going to seek. Every person who follows through and seeks, he finds. Everyone who steps forward with the chutzpah and knocks, knocks, knocks with persistence, that's the one that it's open to. When he, when he was with the woman in the well, he said something amazing to her. Along the same lines, he said, Jesus answered and said to her, if thou knewest the gift of God and who it is that saith to thee, give me to drink, thou wouldest ask of him and he would have given thee living waters. How do we move with fear in our prayer life? I don't want, when he said, ask and it shall be given to you. In other words, if you don't ask, it won't be given to you. And that's really what he was saying in John 16, 24. Hitherto you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. I'm afraid. I'm afraid that I'm not going to ask for what I should ask. And I'm not going to give what he wants to give to me. That I'm not going to seek what I need to be seeking and I won't find it, that I won't knock where I should be knocking and it won't be open to me. And as he said to the woman, well, that brings a lot of fear when he says, if you knew, if you knew, if you knew, you would have asked and it would have been given to you this living water. So in other words, he's saying, he says, when he said in John 16, 24, you've asked nothing in my name. I'm afraid. I'm thinking, you know, the opportunities that it could be lost, I'm afraid of losing opportunities in prayer. So therefore, I move with fear and I ask and I think to myself, did I ask, did I I miss something? I'm afraid I missed something. See, I'm moving with fear when I'm afraid I missed something I should ask for, when I'm afraid I missed something I should be seeking, when I'm afraid that I missed something that I should be knocking for. I'm afraid that I didn't ask because I didn't take the time to know, as he said, if thou wouldest known who it is and what the what was your opportunity to give this this living water? You would have asked. It would have been given to you. So moving with fear in prayer life is to realize that God opens doors through prayers. Prayers should be fervent. That's what it says, is that the prayer of a fervent man availeth much, speaking of Elisha. In other words, the worst thing we can do in prayer is just to sit there and to say the exact same words that we said the day before, because after all, shouldn't we just make a tape recording and play it every day? It would be a lot easier. But when it talks about fervent, it talks about heart engagement. It talks about understanding, looking for the opportunity, being fervent in prayer. And that is something to be afraid of is to miss or just to sink in the prayer to just mindless repetition of words. And so we move with fear so that that doesn't happen to us. Now, we've talked about the judgment seat, and we've talked about being moved with fear as far as prayer. But how does it apply with our relationship with the saved? You know, here again, here is an example where Paul said in Colossians 4.12, speaking about Epaphras, he says, Epaphras, who is one of you, 
a servant in Christ saluteth you always, laboring fervently. He's talking about what Epaphras does. He's laboring fervently in for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. So in other words, we move with fear. We think, oh God, is there a believer? Is there one of my brothers or sisters that I need to be praying for that's under attack, that he is in danger of not falling, that he's in, in, in not standing, he's in danger of falling, that he's in danger of not com- not being complete in all the will of God. Oh God, I pray for him. I pray that he may stand perfect, that he may be complete in all the will of God. And I don't want to miss that opportunity. So I move with fear and say, God, is there a person? And if there is, then I don't want to miss that opportunity to pray for him to be perfect and to stand complete in all the will of God. So that's how I move with fear in relationship to the saved. And we've covered just about everything for the Christian to be moved with fear, but how can we be moved with fear for our relationship with the lost? Well, there, when we see clearly hell and what it means, and hell is unnecessary for anyone. So that makes us greatly afraid because they're not, there's no such thing as fatalism. God has not predestined who is going to heaven, who's going to hell. That's up to each person. So therefore, in 2 Corinthians 5.11, we with Paul, where Paul says, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. He says, we persuade men. In other words, another place Paul says, I am made all things to all men that I may save some. In other words, Paul Paul realized, he says that, he says, and he says to himself, maybe there is a word that I can say to this person. Maybe there's a prayer I can pray for this person. Maybe there's something I can do for this person that will bring this person to come to receive the Lord Jesus Christ so that he doesn't end in hell. Because ending in hell is an absolute, it's an absolute epitome of a catastrophe, of an unnecessary, unnecessary disaster that doesn't need to happen. So we move with faith fear in our relationship for the lost. We fear for them. Thank you for joining us today. Now Noah was a preacher of righteousness who was moved with fear and compassion while God was giving mankind space to repent. Will you be like Noah and carry out a message of hope and gladness to lost Jewish people that are around you? We'd like to help you at Israel Restoration Ministries by giving you a free gift to give to lost Jewish people from Tom Cantor his life story on DVD and in booklet form. So we need you to call us directly today and we'll give it to you free if you're going to give it to a lost Jewish person or we'll mail it to them. 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. Or go to our website, friendshipwithgod.org, where you can fill out an online form to have a gift sent directly to them. So again, go to friendshipwithgod.org. Or call us 1-800-247-3051, 1-800-247-3051. Once again, that's 1-800-247-3051. Thanks for listening.